Hello, everyone. My name is Ben Gilberti, and I'll be your tech host for today. Your real host will be Cal and Calvin Harris, who will be introducing his guest today. I met Calvin at the Prosperos back in 1971, though he has been a member of the Prosperos since 1967. Prosperos is a school about the science of being. And Calvin is a great expression of the energy and spontaneity of being. Calvin does many things in many places. He teaches the main classes of the Prosperos translation and RHS, as well as seminars and workshops in Arizona, California, Michigan, Oregon, and Washington State. Translation is a process for discovering the truth about anything. And RHS is a process that does the same, but dealing with emotions. In addition, Calvin is now teaching a preparatory mentorship program for those interested in becoming professional prosperous mentors. He also creates personalized life coaching packages that enable students greater access to their skills and talents. So now I bring to you Calvin Harris. Hello, Calvin. Hello, Ben. How are you? Okay. Okay. Aloha uh, and welcome. I It's good to have the audience that we have from it looks like across the country <laughs> from uh, New York to California to Seattle. So uh, aloha everyone. Um, today is going to be a really interesting uh, uh, interview. It's going to be very different than what we normally have and do. And, the, and in part that is thanks to Hugh John Melanope for uh, suggesting uh, Thomas as the um, interviewee that, uh, that I'm doing today. In life, um, as children, we go through uh, periods of like observations and we're open to these observations and experiments with that uh, in our development. Uh, it helps us to determine what we know, what becomes our skills, what it is that we put out into the world. Then something happens when we get older, and feelings, um, uh, take place that um, put us in a place of questioning uh, the uh, effects of who we think that we are, that our social settings and culture may bring to our development. Uh, in turn, our uh, cognition seems to be flooded with new ideas, um, new concepts that we have to try and integrate within ourselves. Um, 
with that comes a, a certain amount of discomfort and disruption within our lives. And we then tend to make changes uh, through our processes. Some can be very, very painful to ourselves, some to those that are around us. So, but it is that result of, of life spiraling or moving on. Some may call these uh, our altered states, <laughs> altered states of behaviors that happens. Uh, for if it's during the teenage years, I think some parents consider it uh, the uh, the uh, the dread of of being a a teenager in that. But that can kind of move into later in life, and sometimes it can start earlier. So what we're talking about is the development of a human being which is a complex organism that, that it, it happens on many levels and each human development is different. Yet we all tend to suggest that development has the following characteristics, Con, uh, a con, continual spiraling, uh, that of growth or going on. Um, it's like it builds upon itself. It's like steps that, that we go through. Um, the change process uh, that happens with as we spiral up or, or like switches, like to um, a railroad track that offers different possibilities. This decision-making about these different tracks and these different paths can be painful, yet growth producing if we let it. That, that is all part of a, de a decision process um, that also has pre preventative constructs and conscious recalibration to balance and, and to, to reorient itself. And that under and back of time, space, and reality is that concept of love that is like the implacable hunter that moves us forward with hope and optimism. So, with that kind of background of where we as humans develop and the kinds of things that we go through, um, I want to bring uh, on camera uh, Thomas Andrews. And Thomas, um, there you are. Hi. Well, welcome. Oh. And we're going to be kind of looking at your journey through the uh, human development process and as it goes on. But let's start with um, how uh, I met you through Hugh John. How do you know Hugh John? I, I met Hugh John um, around 2015, 20, yeah, 2015 when I, removed, when I moved back here from Bali, Indonesia. Uh, I was homeless at the time, and uh, someone invited me to this thing called Metal, this group called Metal, uh, Media Entertainment Technology Alpha Leaders. I met Hugh John there. Hugh John was uh, really helpful in uh, 
joining me in, in our outreach to help other homeless people uh, on the streets of uh, Los Angeles, Third and Rose, uh, 96 and Hendry, um, downtown in the, uh, the homeless district. So we spend a lot of time out, you know, two or three times a week going out, um, helping others who are less fortunate uh, through feeding them donations and, and just kind of uh, shepherd them, shepherding them through their journey, maybe helping them find connections to, to relieve their homelessness. He was, uh, he was really helpful out there. He, he donated his time, uh, uh, money, energy. That was, a uh, he was a really big part of that. And although I left metal, uh, he and I remained, uh, friends. He stayed in contact with me. Um, you know, so I, I really appreciate that from you, John. Well, um, I, in the brief meeting that we had before uh, uh, coming on to this, it was very interesting how um, our lives kind of connect and and intertwine and have similar paths. But then when that uh, train track switch box happens how that switch happened differently to each of us and where it led to us but let's first start with um your early years um you mentioned that you were born in where cincinnati ohio uh-huh yeah 1962 uh during the time of um you know a lot of civil unrest uh we were being bust uh, to um, Caucasian schools, our, our, our school system was shut down um, and we were integrated into, you know, into white neighborhoods, which was really um, kind of a different experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, my parents were from the South. So, you know, looking at racism, understanding racism, um, I didn't have the lens that most people have because I was raised at, at Jehovah's Witness and as a Jehovah's Witness um, we came into contact with white people often and we thought they were you know I thought they were pretty cool people um, but then seeing that very those very same groups of people uh, in a school setting was you know it's kind of traumatic you know um, you know I, I as I think back you know I I really didn't understand the word um, nigger until um, I'd say about the seventh grade, uh, mm -hmm. sixth or seventh grade. I didn't understand, you know, the the hate. I, I felt the hate, but I didn't understand the hate behind that word because in our religion we were taught everyone was loving and, and, and kind. So uh, growing up was really kind of. Um, it was, a, it was a life in, in, in two different uh, right so looks. so what uh, time frame would you say that was between what ages are we talking about right there I'd say uh, from um, ages of seven mm -hmm. on up to um, 15 uh-huh um, okay What's interesting about that is because this is one of the um, um, the periods of my life where that same sort of thing happened, 
What is interesting there is the fact that um, many of you don't know, but Glow Runyon and myself would have conversations every now and then because we were both raised as Jehovah's Witnesses. Jo Glow Runyon, of course, is Patty Romer's mother. Uh, if you uh, didn't know Glow, you might know Patty. So, and it was that same period of time, but there was a difference there because my parents um, did not believe in traditional religions, but they did believe in the importance of um, having what they considered a ethical and spiritual background for their children to go to. And they didn't care where we went, just as long as we went somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then came uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses, because my father worked at night, and came to our house, and he saw them, talk with them, and we became part of that. And so during that same time frame between 10 and 17, I was Jehovah's Witness. But uh, what is interesting here is that um, um, within the Jehovah's Witnesses, nobody was going to be going to heaven other than uh, 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 a few thousand people. Everybody else was going to be here on the earth. <laughs> right. 144,000. So 144,000 were going to yeah. be going to heaven. Everybody else was going to be on nerve so that was that whole thing there that uh, and I wasn't looking forward to the cleanup you know I'm not really big on cleaning up anyway but can you imagine trying to clean up after all <laughs> after all of that mess <laughs> but anyway that's just me <laughs> the important thing that goes on about that is that I am, oh, oh, I'll say just a few years older than, uh, than Thomas here, but within the time frame that I was in the witnesses and had gotten out and the time that he was there, there was one key difference that had taken place. And this is one of those change, uh, track changing moments in someone's life. And that was because when you were, uh, when I was in the witnesses, they were always saying that the uh, end of the world was near, but there was no time frame that was set. But then Thomas, you were saying that when you were in, they gave you a time frame. Yeah, it was 1975. The, the world was supposed to be over by 1975. So it told us there's, there's no need for secondary education. Um, and you had the benefit of, of having other, religion, other religions before um, mm -hmm. you came into Jehovah's Witness. I, ha I had it from birth. From, mm -hmm. <laughs> from birth, uh, I was passing out watchtowers and awakes mm -hmm. and magazines and knocking <laughs> on doors, I, you know, penny loafers and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> traumatic but, experience <laughs> but within that is the difference because uh, my family being a, a black family that uh came from traditional uh roots too my uh family was from uh texas in the south somewhere yeah. um but but all of my brothers and sisters and myself was born in california but uh, even on the demands, I guess, of our 
grandparents, education was very important because education was seen as the way out. If you were going to, if you were a black person, you know, you only had two ways out of the situations that you found yourself in. And that was either uh, playing sports or, ed or through the education that you could get. So education has always been prominent in mine. And as you can see the difference in something like that, that had happened um, to uh, Thomas here. Thomas, um, tell us what happened then with, with you first uh, being, because you were not only in Cincinnati, you also were still <laughs> traveling back and forth uh, to the South. So what changed, even though you were going to white schools, that happened to you uh, with one, the sense that you didn't need education, and then two, the, the way in which you felt you were being treated? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think the change happened with my, my, my awareness. Uh, from reading the Bible, you know, they kept saying it's this, it's this loving God um, is what we talked about. But I didn't see that in, in my house. I, you know, I began to see and it didn't make sense. I'm like, if this God is loving, why is, you know, my, my mom being beat? Um, you know, why is my family being, uh, why is sexual abuse going on in my household and all these things are going on? This this cannot, this cannot be. And I think at 11, I began to see that, um, that this was, this is wrong, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, and then I began to rebel. Um, I had, had a few assaults, I think in the sixth grade, I knocked out, um, I assaulted, punched, you know, three white kids, different white kids in the face. Um, cause I got tired. Um, as I, and I just, as I grew, uh, I, I, violence, physical violence was my means of, of handling any situation. Um, so what changed is that I, I knew this wasn't right. And I began to rebel against, against my father, against the teachings, because I'm like, if you're not following it, so why should I follow this? <laughs> and that was my path. Um, I couldn't play sports, uh, couldn't take part of any higher education. So, um, you know, then 1975 came, uh, the world did not end, but no one said, hey, the world isn't ending, so let's do this. So just a lot of um, um, mistrust, you know, of everything that was that was going on. And as we're going back and forth from, from the South, you know, to, to Cincinnati, I hear how you know, whites are addressing my father, you know, but my father's meek you know, as they call him boy, you know, the, the conversations that they're having, you know, about white people behind closed doors. But then when we out in this Jehovah's Witness meeting situation, it's two totally different people, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I learned that word hypocrisy. I'm like, you, you guys are, this is, this, these are hypocrites. You know what I mean? You can't say what you want to say in front of their face, you know, so you laugh and smile like everything is good, but you, you know, so I didn't know who was who, uh, who to trust, who to believe in, who to, you know, so it was, I felt from then on at a young age, it was all on me. 
you know, anything mm -hmm. that I needed to do, anything I need to make happen, you know, I, I need to handle myself because it ain't going to happen no other way. Uh, now, you say uh, handle yourself, but you weren't the, the only child in your household, were you? There, there was um, there's four of us. Um, so um, my youngest brother, Greg, who was, you know, raped and molested in the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witness. He committed suicide uh, years ago. My sister, Belinda, uh, she's living in Cincinnati. Um, you know, that, that upbringing really had a, had a tremendous uh, effect on her ability to, to learn and grow. Uh, my brother Taz, um, he's, um, he's facing cancer right now. He, he never tried to get any other education other than what was, what was uh, given. So a lot of things that the mind was, was stunted. You know, the, the mm -hmm. whole idea of life was, was stunted. So you've got, and then my other brother, Bruce, who was my, from my mother's marriage, he, he just died of a cocaine overdose during the pandemic. His life never got right as well. And, and then for me growing up, I, I, I attribute all that to this, this, uh, this belief and to this religious Jehovah's Witness structure, which would not allow any other type of uh, growth, uh, anything necessary to being a human, a productive human in this society. Um, Which I think is interesting because for me, uh, it was one of the important um, changing points within my life. First, it had given, it had done away with that. For me, what was that hypocritical thing of hell because they had no hell, <laughs> yeah. you know? So that was really important. But then uh, as someone who was, who was questioning and who had that desire to learn, certain kinds of things weren't making sense. And they did encourage to a, a, to a certain degree or they would encourage, um, through the pulpit that you go and that you read and yet you research. And yet when you came back with questions or something, individuals would kind of poo-poo what was going on or if you asked, like such uh, simple things beginning with as a child that um, the word hell had, I'm sorry, the word love had uh, several meanings and uh, such as uh, agape, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there was the, the other loves that were being talked about. And I was, and uh, being a young person, I was kind of interested in some of the other ones and they weren't going to be talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that, was, that subject was poo-poo too. So yeah. it was uh, the, the situation that went on there. Um, also, you were talking about the um, prejudice that you had uh, experienced. Uh, we had, uh, my family had moved into a uh, well-established middle-class uh, neighborhood. The problem was that they were shocked over the fact that uh, a black man could afford to, uh, to, uh, 
to get financing during that period of time to move into the area, and then doubly shocked that he was uh, had a family of 10 children. So, wow. <laughs> so it, it was not one of the, the situations that... Um, that they were expecting, nor did they want, because many of the uh, households had only 2.5 children or whatever it was at that point. And yep. all of a sudden, we did not fit the profile. And so going to school, there was that, that kind of thing. But I guess being the fact that uh, my father spoke five languages and there were several other things that went on, it was this sort of thing of where the put down couldn't, wasn't there because we felt that we had a right to be there uh, other than, um, uh, and the important thing is what we did scholastically. So it was, this is where the focus was, but this has to do with the cultural indoctrination that went on. Okay. So um, of course, when the um, riots in LA happened and the neighborhood completely changed with the Watts riots that took place, uh, all of a sudden uh, the neighborhoods that we lived in uh, were subject to white flight and overnight changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the caliber of the schools changed so that the um, the um, education, the background and the individuals that I was involved with were very, very different than what my uh, brothers and sisters had encountered later. And then uh, the evolution to where what some of the things that you had encountered, which had left one of my nephews writing this book, which is called Beyond the Crack Generation, which um, deals with uh, some of the experiences that then you went through, as well as getting into uh, drugs and whatever. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, that was my thing. Um, I think as I got to a certain age, uh, unable to forge relationships, I, you know, in, in sports, we were, we were told uh, bad associations for his useful habits. First mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Corinthians 15, 33. <laughs> well, no, wait a minute. It wasn't only only the sports that you couldn't be involved with, but there was no Christmas, no Easter. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. No none, birthdays. Yeah. So this is that. why uh, birthdays <laughs> and all that. Once I got out of that, then I've, I've taken on all of the holidays. I don't want to miss out on anything. And now I feel like a good American because you know as a good american we celebrate cinco de mayo <laughs> yeah <laughs> whatever yeah. you know so well, i mean with me as 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 a recovering alcoholic uh holidays were not were an opportunity to to drink and use um mm -hmm. more and, and 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 overindulge that was uh, that's what holidays meant for me so even today don't they don't have a lot of relevance mm -hmm. in me in my life except for the people around me you know it feels good to wish someone a happy birthday um, yeah. you know so um yeah that's my uh, that was my upbringing and i think when i got to a certain point um, school wasn't an option i was presented with the option of selling you know cocaine so um and that 
something is what I decided to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, wasn't the best at that because uh, <laughs> we went to jail. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and there we go from there. When they, they tell you in, 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 in America that you know, once you serve your time, you're, you're good to go, you're, you're forgiven. That's the biggest lie out there. Uh, once you do that, you're, you have a, a scarlet letter <laughs> on your forehead. So mm-hmm. uh, you'll, never, you'll never again be accepted into corporate America unless you come with something, some outstanding story mm-hmm. um, or you just make something amazing happen or you're this, this athlete or you, you, know, you get this idea that um, you know, the white America can grasp onto and, and, and use and um, you, can, you can come up that way. And then there's education. But just for a long time, I, I, I never looked at uh, education as being a choice, you know, and, and until I got free from drugs and, and alcohol did I see that perhaps I do have options. I could, I could do something where, different with my life. Where did that track change? And then you could see that you had options. When did that happen? Um, I was living in Los Angeles. I was 48 years of age and, um, you know, I had a life of drugs and alcohol, 25, 30, 30 something years, you know, um, and I, I, I started to, after so many failures, I began to look and see that there's, there's gotta be something here, you know what I mean? That I'm, that I'm missing, uh, cause I go up and then I go down, I go up and I go down. And what was consistent was my use of alcohol and drugs. So um, finally, I decided, um, you know, maybe I should leave California and go see my my son back in Atlanta. Um, Because I I still, at that time, I didn't think drugs and alcohol was a problem. Um, But then when I went um, home, um, I had a pretty rude awakening there. And I had an option between being sleeping in my car, uh, which was owned by the bank and they were looking for it, or sleeping in a homeless shelter. A friend of mine sent me some money and I ended up um, in a halfway house. And in that halfway house, they said, the only way you can stay here is that you have to go to these meetings. Um, I don't want to go to meetings because I didn't think I had a problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and I went to these meetings, man, and it was just, there were just more white people, um, you know, and I'm like, how can I, why I keep running into you guys, you know? Uh, so um, I had to drop that. I had to drop that whole mindset because I think now I, I needed help. So after I, I looked, stopped looking at the differences in other people and began to accept you know, that these people here have, you know, they, they're winning, they have their life back. That's when I, I dropped my guards and started listening. And at, at, at 48, I think it was June 10th, 2010 is when I had my last drink or, or drug. And then, uh, and about, uh, 18 months later, I looked around and I, I still felt the racism. I felt, you know, living in Atlanta, I felt it really, really hard. It was in the meetings. It was in the rooms. We had sometimes white people on one side of the, the meeting and the, the black people on the other. And you had the groups after the meeting of group pockets of whites, pockets of blacks. And 
I felt all that and I decided, Hey, I want to, I have a passport. I've never used it. So, um, I booked a one-way ticket to Singapore, you know, I went to Singapore and, you know, I, I contacted AA to see if there was going to be an AA there in Singapore to, to, to help me. And they were there. I had a great relationship with them. I started working for going to hospitals and institutions in Singapore, talking to people who had challenges with, uh, with drugs. Um, it was an amazing opportunity there. Tom, Thomas, I want to uh, bring in something that's very important that you're saying, <clears throat> that part of your recovery also entailed you being of service to someone else. Yes, yes. It was a big part of it. So many times individuals, they, they don't realize that it is important to be of service and that really what we are all here for is to be of service to each other. Absolutely. I think that's what Muhammad Ali said. He says, uh, my service to others is, is the rent that I pay for being on this earth. So that kind of stuck, stuck with me. And then after about a year in Singapore, I, I moved to Bali. I stayed there for about three and a half years. I, that's where I came up. You know, service really stuck with me. I, I, as a trainer, you know, I, uh, I wanted to train groups of people, especially Indonesians. They were, they were obese, a lot of obese people, uh, expat as well as Indonesians, you know, because we brought them McDonald's and Pizza Hut. And, um, <laughs> and I wanted to teach. I wanted to, to share. And I couldn't do it in the gym. And I had this beautiful beach. And that's where I came up with this idea with this uh, – the bag, the I call it the Earth is a gym bag at the time, but it's called a, the T3, the T3 bag now. It's a portable weight or bag you can fill with sand or or water. And I came up with that idea there, and I had groups of you know 20, 30 people on the beach. Uh, you know, it was the the most amazing time uh, of my life. I was going to the jails. I was talking to. Uh, prisoners there who were serving life sentences from transporting heroin and cocaine into into Bali who were on death row had an opportunity to sit with them um, had an opportunity to work with uh, people from Australia Europe uh, Russia who were having troubles with alcohol and drugs and you know some of them didn't make it um, you know they took the ultimate leap um, but I was able to share fitness, you know, um, and, and, and a love for a better life with a lot of people. So, so you would say then that uh, through your uh, awakening with getting your body clean and that, that then you went into what would be considered uh, um, the physique area of, of, uh, the somatic experience. Um, soma means that body, mind, spirit right. connection uh, of of seeing health through uh, taking care of your body. Is that how you came about your exercise programs and that that you do? Um, yes, that's in in a nutshell. I um, when I was going through my process, my eighteen months, I started thinking about what is it. Uh, I was listening to Dr. Wayne Dyer a lot and other metaphysical healers. And, uh, and he talked about what is it that you would do if money wasn't 
an object. You know, money didn't matter. What would you do? And uh, and I had time to think about my life over the past, you know, 40, 50 years. And, and every time I had a tough time in life, I'd always go back to fitness. Mm-hmm. So for me, it, it was a no-brainer that maybe I should open that door of fitness and good and open uh, create a pathway into the lives of others through that fitness door so i started looking at my own body and i started understanding why i wasn't able to achieve um, a level of physical fitness that you see in magazines and i read up on that and i studied that and when i transformed my body people started asking me hey can you transform mine mm-hmm. you know um but my answer was yes but uh, my thing was, if, if you're using drugs and, and alcohol, um, we probably won't be a good fit because yeah. it's important that you're you're free from mind-altering substances, and uh, so you're ready to get into your to learn about uh, the most important uh, thing that you were given when you made that first breath, and that is that our bodies. Mm-hmm. So it is uh, the the situation of where, um, even though that you may not have started from a place of study and research and and seeking out um, the spiritual teachers and things that you actually needed to, at some point the switch railroad track switch again happened, and it allowed you to connect. So that spiraling that we're talking about spiraled once again back to a place of where you could see something differently, uh, have a new paradigm with it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. They say alcohol is a spirit. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of hard for, you know, you've got that spirit of alcohol in your body. It's really kind of difficult for another spirit to come in and do what it needs to do. And until I relieved myself from that spirit, my dependency on that spirit, was I able to uh, understand what true spirit and inspiration mm-hmm. is. So it is, it's that, that, that uh, conscious awareness that we all need to come to about who we are, what we are, and what our contributions are. And so moving forward, um, what are some of the things that you're hoping to accomplish within the next, oh, say five years? The next five years, uh, I see myself um, with a TED Talk, um, speaking to others um, on the corporate level, um, you know, and, through corporations, on TED Talks, and um, around the world, uh, speaking to people about that connection um, with spirit. And it and it's never too late. I, I see so many people um, our age, you know, I'll be 60 in, in, a, in, a, in a month and a half, who think it's too late, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's, 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 where the, that's where the dying begins, when mm-hmm. you start thinking it's too late. And it's never too late to to take back your your health and and, and your wellness. You just got to start. It's it's like one day at a time, um, right? And, and getting that back. So I, I see myself uh, speaking to others, um, 
I see my, my product being more of a, a giveaway at corporate functions. Um, I see myself teaching retreats. Um, and, and, and I like to teach retreats in places like the, like the beach, uh, mm -hmm. outside, where grounding can happen. Grounding, people understand the importance of grounding. We've got locked into these shoes that keep our feet closed mm -hmm. down. So again, it's that sense <laughs> of, of nakedness. Yes. <laughs> so the situation yeah. is that first you had to become naked to yourself and truthful and then build upon that and then let individuals through the sand have their feet touch the earth. Exactly. And that. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, that is so important. Uh, so that, and that there is that sense of service that is so necessary that comes out of that, which is great. And that we really appreciate that. Thank you all for being here for this Sunday meeting.